don't even know. What were we saying? Is it just the Empathy Podcast? Uh, empathy, a podcast. Empathy, a podcast about a powerful idea and the actions it inspires. Welcome to episode one of Empathy, a podcast from thearcofempathy.com. I'm Todd Price here with Kenan Heiss. Hi, Kenan. Hi. Good to be with you here today. So for this first episode, we wanted to tackle empathy's role in combating the coronavirus. Yes. All right. So first of all, since this is our first episode, why don't we talk about what is empathy? What do we mean when we're talking about this well, word? People know the word and they even have a sense of it, but it goes a little beyond that. It's, it's somebody who is aware of other people's feelings and their needs and responds to it. And... Um, I, I, it's best told in terms of somebody who had empathy, and certainly one of the best examples in our time was Malala, right. a young girl who was in, around 10 years old living in Pakistan, and her mother asked her to take the garbage out to the garbage dump, and she did, and when she went out there, she saw a bunch of other girls her age picking up food out of the gar garbage, and her father had a school, so when she went home, she said, can't we do something for them? Can't we get them an education so that they can grow up and be, you know, who they can be. And uh, he said, we can do that. And uh, she then next took the years between 10 and 14 to talk about this, to talk, to talk on the radio, to uh, write uh, articles about it, and just how her feelings toward these young girls and, and the fact that the Taliban would not let them go to school. And uh, so she, she attacked the Taliban at the age of 14 and 15, verbally. And she was well known in Pakistan for doing that. Mm. And it was because she had empathy for those girls that she had met and seen in the uh, uh, garbage dump. And uh, somebody jumped on her school bus. The, uh, there was two people, two members of the Taliban, and one shot her in the head. And fortunately, she recovered and has spent the time since then doing that, and she won the Nobel Peace Prize for it. Right. But she had empathy. And that's, that's, that's such a great story. About. That's what we want to be able to apply to the um, uh, coronavirus. Uh, okay, so let me stop you there. So empathy is putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Malala obviously did that when she saw these young girls her age who needed an education, couldn't get it. Um, the coronavirus, I think everybody knows what that is because it's all over the news now. Uh, what does empathy have to do with the coronavirus? Well, the first people to, to fight and to deal with it is the government, the medical profession, and institutions that have, have ways to do it with. And it's, uh, you know, we have to make certain that they are aware of people and who all they are aware of because much of this, what you hear on the radio and television is about, uh, you know, us, uh, people who are, you know, uh, who have resources and how to use those resources and how to wash your hands and how to not let, put your hands to your face afterwards and uh, uh, to, to be concerned about being in crowded places and, uh, and that you might pick it up there. 
but people who are in really crowded places are not focused on, and that's very often people who live in, in crowded neighborhoods, crowded buildings, uh, tenements, or uh, who live in, who are imprisoned, or who are, the people, for example, who are on our, imprisoned on our borders in the, in the, in the Southwest. And uh, that focus has to be particular. We have to be concerned that in going to work, in, in, they have to go to work because they have to survive. These people don't have the resources. They can't put things away for next week, much less, you know, for the future to, to meet it with. They, they need to, they can't take off work, they need to go to work. Right. And if one of them becomes sick, then, you know, they don't have the, to, the medicines or the needs to meet their, those needs. So we've really got to put these two things together. And, uh, and especially the imprisoned people in, in, uh, in, the, in the congested neighborhoods and the very poor. And uh, unless we're talking about them, we're talking about a segment of our population that can bring it back to us. Hmm. Okay, so your point being there that it's in all of our best interest to care for everyone, including uh, maybe especially the, those who are subjected to crowded conditions where it's going to be uh, kind of tear through that population more quickly. That's, and and I'm, I was talking mainly about the United States and our country, but it's the other countries of the world, the very poor ones. And, uh, certainly, we went to Africa uh, and helped down there uh, a few years ago. Sent people down there to do it. We have yeah, to have that you mentality. Speak of Ebola, Ebola, when we yes, went there. Right. Uh, yeah. Yes, and we have to find ways to do it. And and it has to be, you know, we just are not enough aware of how other people live, and uh, our newspapers don't tell their story, and our television certainly doesn't tell their story. Maybe a little drama here and there, but. Basically, uh, we we don't know what their needs are. We don't know, and we we have to know this time. Now we gotta know. Yeah. So let me actually back up there. Um, I think a lot of our listeners might not know who you are and your interest and in, in many years working um, to tell the, the the stories of of people. Uh, the, the kind of people you just just mentioned. So why yeah, you I call tell us about it, I that. call it letting them speak for themselves. I was a reporter for many years for the Chicago Tribune, and uh, uh, I was head of the Action Line column that helped people with different problems that they would have. Very often a welfare problem. I thought, you know, and we tried to do something about every complaint or request that we got, and it was a very much a, a paper really put some money and staff on it to to do that to be able to do it. In around 1980, when the, the, um, the Reagan welfare cuts came through, I wanted to tell the story because it wasn't being told in the paper or anything else how it was affecting people. Uh -huh. And uh, so I, was, I got together the information from the city councils uh, with, all their, with all their agencies, heads, and stuff like this. I was going to boil that down and make a story out of it, an article. But there was nothing there to tell. There was nothing about the really, because the people who are head of agencies very rarely have real contact with very poor people and very needy people. So I went out and got 15 people from one of the poorer neighborhoods in Chicago 
and let them talk. And I wrote a page, uh, it was a page and a half in the Tribune, and my voice was not in there in any way. It was just what they had to say, and they let them speak for themselves. And they, they told some really dramatic, sad stories of, you know, seeing somebody steal a piece of food out of a, out of a grocery store and just anything else that they could do to survive. So uh, I put it in the paper and the, and the editor was very pleased with it and he gave me a column to do this once a week besides my other assignments to go out and interview people. For example, I interviewed the people in the county jail, in women's county jail, and the head of it said there has been an enormous increase in number of, of people here since the, the cuts because they're, they're, they're going out to become prostitutes. It's the only way they can make some money, feel they can make some money. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, uh, I talked to people on the street in, in, this, in soup kitchens, and they, you know, their story was not getting out and still is not getting out enough. And, uh, and now we got to know what their story is because they, they could have a problem and that could become our problem. Yeah, and uh, I wanted to bring it back to, you mentioned the word crowding several times uh, when you were discussing some of the, the reasons that yeah. um, people in uh, you know hard economic times aren't able to combat the coronavirus the same way. And um, that really struck me because I, I just I hadn't considered that. Uh, so I, I think you listed something like 15 reasons why yeah. um, it's going to hit them more. And that was one of the central themes, I think, is that... Well. My wife, Carol, who's, who's a nurse, um, said the nursing homes, and she also wrote the, the, uh, the rulings for the, all the nursing homes in the country. She started off in Evanston and then the other, other places picked it up. And she said that the, um, the reason they're, one of the reasons they're having this, this outbreak in nursing homes is that the people who work there are coming from poorer neighborhoods and are you know not able to deal with it and they bring it into they can and this is not all that but they, they can bring it into the nursing homes and uh, that's again a, a, an indication of where the if we don't deal with the problem with the poor we're not going to be able to help ourselves wow um that's that's a really good point i i also have to mention uh i idolized Ronald Reagan as a child. Mm -hmm. I came from a conservative family, uh, and we just, we didn't talk about politics. So I have no idea what my parents thought about welfare, but, but uh, I knew that I was supposed to like Ronald Reagan. And so it wasn't until I met you, um, I, I think it was when I met you, even though I'd been uh, more liberal, I think, more liberally minded uh, for, for some years, that uh, I really started to think about how how much people have suffered for so many years because welfare has been gradually torn down. Well, I, I grew up in the Depression, and we had a family of six boys and later a girl, and my parents, and my father was out of work, and my mother would make flowers out of wood fiber, it's a material that came from the uh, Philippines. and. Uh, my father would take my brothers out to sell it, and I was too little. I was five or six years old. I begged and begged and begged, and so finally she said, you can go out on the street, 
And I came home and I had sold three flowers, 25 cents a piece. I made 75 cents. That's all, all, my, all my brothers and my father all put together made that day. So I got uh -huh. a job and I spent the time going from door to door and meeting very poor people who didn't have much money. They'd look under the couch to see if they had a dime or a quarter there to, you know, or sometimes if they didn't have enough money to give. One woman gave me her collection of stamps. I mean, it was just this kindness that was bestowed on me. And, you know, and, and it, it has affected my life, definitely. Hmm. Yeah, so you definitely see, see their plight. Um, so you have, I, I, I should say that we're neighbors. I, I live uh, two floors above you, so that's how, that's how we met. Um, I, I know you've been, look, you've been writing a book about empathy for, for some time now, and, and you've been, been talking to me about that. Um, tell me about a little bit about the book, uh, what, what's in it, kind of the, the stories that you plan to, to tell in well, there. Malala is one of the many stories in it, and uh, it's about other people who, uh, whether it's Martin Luther King or you know, somebody very simple, it's in, in one case, uh, I, I wrote a, I was as a reporter, I did a very foolish thing. I went on Skid Row here in Chicago, which no longer exists, and I got on a bus with a group of men who were heading up north to uh, cherry pick. And I wanted to write a story, I wanted to see the inside story of how it was. And most of them had slept on the bus the night before because they, they didn't have any place else to go. Some slept in doorways, things like this. And uh, they were, you know, they were, Real, real human beings to me, and but there was one guy on there who was a very, very aggressive, uh, gay person who kept trying to entice everybody there, and the, the people were just angry at him and just moved away and just you know didn't want to have anything to do with him, and about a third of the way there, uh, the bus driver who was a crew leader and a very cruel person, but wanted to get rid of the problem, so he just opened the door and threw the guy out. And every man on that bus said, oh, how's he gonna get back to Chicago? I mean, these were people whom he had abused, had been abusive toward. These were people who had nothing in their lives. As a matter of fact, as we went on, somebody had coffee grounds and we got some water and passed it around so people could get a cup of taste of coffee. Hmm. I mean, and then when we got up to the cherry orchard, the, there was a place, there was a, a fire, uh, fireplace that he, it was the only thing that he did the building were in, it was quite cold. And guys would stay up, take turns all night long to keep it warm. I mean, these, this is empathy. And, and it was the empathy that didn't go down to the poor, it came up from the poor. Hmm. And I, I got very, very frightened because the leader of the crew, crew leader, had a, pistol on his side and he put his hand on it and said, you're going to listen to what I say. So I got the hell out of there <laughs> and hitchhiked into town and then took a bus and came back to Chicago. So that was an experience that was a little foolish on my part, but quite educational. <laughs> so um, you started writing this book and you've got this story and many others in there, Malala. Um, mm -hmm. Let's actually go back to the word empathy, though. Um, it is kind of a newer word, isn't that right? Yes, the word came into the English language in around 1900. But 500 BC, there were any number of people in what 
somebody is called the Axio Age, uh, Confucius, the Hindu uh, priests, uh, and, and uh, some of the uh, the uh, uh, Jeremiah, some of the, the 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 writers of the Old Testament, uh, and they all had this idea. They didn't have a word for it. They had different words for it, but that you do something for somebody else, you find out what they need, and you, you deal with it. And that was really the formation of the modern religions of all can be traced back to that in, in some form or other. Yeah, and isn't that kind of the central theme of all the major religions is kind of maybe the golden rule you could summarize it yes, to, to the, do to others as you yeah. would have them do to you. So that, and in order to do well, that, you have... Sermon on the Mount. You know, yeah. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's very much true within the, uh, the uh, Islam and in, in uh, you know, Confucianism and uh, Hinduism and all the, all the different ones that, and, you know, Judaism, etc. Mm -hmm. so, Buddhism, there, that's it, it's yeah. in, in every major religion is to... Uh, they have a sense of it, but they don't pinpoint it as such. They have different words for it. Yeah, it's compassion, love yeah, even. Yeah, love your neighbor as yourself, that kind of thing. But, you know... Uh, empathy has a little more bite to it because it talks about knowing and understanding other people and their needs. Yeah. And that's, you know, uh, it's not just putting money in a, in a collection basket and you don't know where it's going to go to. It's finding out who, who they go to and what do they really need. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe, it, maybe it's a little, it costs you a little more to do that. Uh, not in terms of money, but in terms of Effort and energy and... and and people do it. You you run into people who are empathetic and and uh, they wouldn't know how to define it, but they they, they do know it. So what, one of the ideas um, you have brought up and uh, just with me personally, but also I know you've written about it is uh, the axial age, which I, I, maybe you just well, mentioned. I call it. I, I call our age not the axial age, but it's really the democratic age. Because, well, but I was going back to so just just to just to clarify. So the axial age is what you were referring to, yes. 500 BC, mm -hmm. when all the major religions came out, and Karen Armstrong right. and some others right. have written about that yes. at length. Um, but you believe that we're kind of in a uh, what you call a pivotal age now, right? Where that's right. And uh, what, why, what what is what do you mean by the that? The world and why, changed why? dramatically in 1776, and uh, I, I uh, when I wrote a chapter about it. I said that 58 men gathered in uh, uh, Philadelphia uh, who to break loose from England and, and to set up a democracy. And there was one woman who didn't get to go there, and, but she wrote to her husband, John Adams, later president, that, remember the ladies, and give us equality, give, treat us fairly. And, and, Girls were not allowed to go to school at that time, and she, you know, and, and she talked about the slaves. You know, how can you talk about freedom, and not and not free your slaves of the many people who were in that room? And uh, that was uh, the John, uh, Abigail Adams, and her voice has come down through the years since then, mm -hmm. along with the Declaration of Independence and and the Constitution. Not as loud, not as often. But it has been there, and it influenced many of the women during the 18th and 19th centuries, especially the 19th century, who fought for the right to vote for women and who 
fought for the rights of, of in marriage that do they that the, the husband and wife be equal, and they're still fighting for some of those things. Yeah, yeah, we're we're uh, still not out of the woods as far as uh, equality for uh, women and uh, race equality. So we, we've got a long way to go on yeah. that. And what the uh, the thing is that that's empathy. What she did, it, it more than you know, she was concerned about other women. She was concerned about the women to come. She was concerned about the slaves. One of the slave, the next slave came and came to her house, and she you know brought took him in and fed him, etc. You know, like this, you you wouldn't you're not supposed to do that kind of thing in that time. Yeah. But that's who she was, and uh, she was a, a really and and when we do something that's empathetic. We light a little fire that goes out beyond us. We don't know what effect it will have. But yeah. if you are kind and concerned about somebody, I, so many times you do do find out that that person passed it along. And, and of course, that idea of passing it along is, is an idea of our age. Yeah. And, uh, and democracy itself is, it is equality. That's empathy. That's recognizing that other people out there are your equal. And that's not what people had, you know. That's not the, the monks were better than than the people on the street. The the the, uh, the, the nobles were better than than you know than uh, the serfs. I mean, it, and all that mentality went for centuries and centuries and centuries, and we broke through it quite a bit. To a point, right? To a point, yeah. Still have a long way to go, but it was uh, yeah definitely a a big step forward. Um, I think um, I would like to have you read a quote that um, you bring out. You quote many um, famous authors and uh, people throughout the ages in, in your writing. And one of them is from Plato. Um, and there's the souls. All right. This is Plato, who was writing this about 800 B.C., uh, 700 or 800 B.C., uh, actually 380 B.C., I'm sorry, my time's wrong. And he was a Greek philosopher, and he, he brought into the idea of how empathy gets into, into the world. And this is a quote. The souls of people on their way to earth, life, pass through a room full of lights. Each takes a taper, often only a spark, to guide it in the dim country of this world. But some souls, by rare fortune, are detained longer, have time to grasp a handful of tapers, which they weave into a torch. These are the torch bearers of humanity. It's poets, seers, and saints who lead and lift the race out of the darkness toward the light. They are the lawgivers, the savers, the light bringers, the way showers, and truth-tellers, and without them, humanity would lose its way in the dark. And that is a distinction that we have to see which side are we on. Did we come through that room? And if there are people in power who didn't come through that room, we have to make up for them. Yeah. And there are. <laughs> there are, uh... Unfortunately, that seems to be how the world has worked most of the time. Is not always, of course. And the, you, you tell the stories of many uh, leaders who are 
just very good people and full of love and empathy. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we don't always have those people make it uh, into power. Um, John F. Kennedy said, uh, ask not what you can do for your, your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Yeah. And, and the country means the other people in it, not, not the land and the buildings. Yes, yeah. Yeah, what would we all, would, would our world be a different place if everybody just helped their neighbor, their actual neighbor? And if everybody did that, that would extend through all the neighborhoods uh, in the world. I it? think it would have been a better place if uh, Robert F. Kennedy were not assassinated because he had empathy like you wouldn't believe. Hmm. And uh, his being shot just before the election, that he would have probably been elected president in 68, hmm. just didn't happen. So we have to make up for those who haven't made it. Yes, we do. Um, why don't we bring it back uh, to the coronavirus? So right. just in, in closing here, what do you think we can do? What, what do you mean by empathy um, for people in regards to the coronavirus? Do, we, do, do I need to go to someone's house who has the coronavirus? No, and that's not the answer. That's not the answer. Okay. Definitely not. Somebody who was objecting to my bringing that up because that's what they thought I was talking about. Uh -huh. But it is the fact that the people on television are not giving us this broader picture that, you know, that we, how we can become involved, how we can do something. That uh, we need the country and the medical profession to be very concerned about prisons. We, we hear nothing about people who are in prison, you know, and certainly uh, it's, it's going to be there. I mean, we hear rather about people on cruises. Yeah. And uh, we hear nothing about the, the people that we have trapped in prisons on, uh, who, you know, were fleeing, coming to our country to, for, to be saved from, you know, all of the, the terrible things that were happening in their country. We have no, no knowledge about what's happening to them, whether they're affected by, you know, other illnesses, other discontent, other situations, or even the, the virus itself. I mean, we've got to go into these places. We've got to make certain, and 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 I think we've got to tell the news media to to, to become aware of this and to, to give us that story, to tell us this story about what's happening in the ghettos and the poor neighborhoods and in the um, and in prisons and in very crowded places and tenements, and we need also to put the pressure on. You know, we've got to talk to our legislators, not only the state. And the, and the national ones, but all the way up. And uh, uh, the Trump has said a couple things that you know they're going to do, but it's nowhere near focused on that group of people. He's he's focusing it on the group of people. I, well, you know, I can't tell you what he's focusing on. I don't speak for him, but uh, whoever is the, was the president and whoever's running for president should make this part of their issues and, and focus on, on this and put it together with the poverty that exists in our country, the, the depredation, the, the overstocking of prisons, prisoners for, you know, and, and taking, putting, being put in prison for practically nothing. Uh, we've got to have their voices heard and their needs met. And uh, I think that uh, that's where we have to start. And, uh, and we have to think about it ourselves first before we get to a point where we can do something. 
Well, I will leave it there. That's an excellent uh, summary of where, uh, where we can head with this, Ken. And so thanks uh, for your time, and uh, thanks for joining us, everybody, on this first episode. And we'll see you again next time. Amen. Amen. Thank you.